talking about how loved we are. Matt? Don't you love Ben? I know you guys do. And I know you love Gen Z more than Ben, but we love Ben. Um, he's such, got such a good heart. Um, let me tell you a little Ben's story. So, like Ben said, he came to Stantonville all those years, and we're out in the country, a little more relaxed, and so uh, there's not many suits and ties ever. Like, my dad is about the only one. And, um, and so for all those years, you know, three, three and a half years Ben was there, suit and tie the entire time. And I'd make fun of him. I'd say, Ben, look around, man. You're the only one. You're the only one. And so on my way down here, I thought, okay, this is the church that Ben's at. It's going to be, I better, I better stop him by myself, like a sports coat, the whole deal. And I pull up out here, and Ben's got this ratty shirt on, and it's not even tucked in. So I don't know what's happened to Ben since he's been here. And I've, I've heard it's a little more formal here and everything. But man, I'm disappointed in, in what's, what's happened. I'm just kidding. I love Ben um, and Jensie and all of those great, um, great students that come from Buford to Freed Hardeman. And I've gotten to know some of them at Stantonville. And there's too many of them to name. Uh, but I'm thankful for the long relationship that, that this church has had with uh, folks from Tennessee. Uh, anyway, I'm just thankful to be here. Looking forward to this weekend. And I hope that what we do this weekend can be something that you can perhaps share with your your friends and neighbors in a way that's not threatening or, um, anyway, I just hope it's something that, that's worth sharing, and I know that the Word of God is obviously worth sharing. As we come to the end of the trials of Jesus, the words that set off the rest of the story are these, and having scourged Jesus, they then delivered him to be crucified. It's fairly non-climactic, but it represents the beginning of the end of the life of Jesus. Scourging is mentioned almost in passing, almost as if it's just something random that they added in there at the end, kind of like, well, I went to the store, then I went to lunch, had a guy scourged, and then went on to the next thing. But if you know anything about scourging, there's nothing insignificant about it. Because when they scourged Jesus, they likely tied him to a post of some sort that he would have been bent over, and then a professional thug who had a whip in his hands, and that whip would have had strands on the ends of it, and probably tied to those strands were pieces of bone or metal, and then they would repeatedly lash the person that they were scourging over and over again, and it would flay the skin. In fact, when that professional thug had really done a good job, and again, this is difficult perhaps even to hear, but there would be bone and intestine that were visible. Sometimes the person died, but they did this to Jesus so that he wouldn't survive the day, and perhaps he would die before, before the Sabbath started that evening. But they took our Savior, Jesus, and they beat him to a bloody pulp. And after they had done that to Jesus, it should have been time for them to take him to Golgotha, the place of the skull where they would crucify him. But the soldiers who were at least partly responsible for scourging him decided to have a little fun with him. And so according to Matthew 27, they take him into the barracks or their headquarters, the text says. And it says they gather the whole battalion around him. Now, I've always imagined this scene, and it's, a, it's an emotional scene to imagine these soldiers gathered around Jesus, mocking him. And I've always imagined three or four guys. But when it says in the text that the whole battalion was gathered there, that means that there were dozens, maybe over a hundred 
I can't really fathom that, but at least dozens of Roman soldiers gather around Jesus, and John's account says they strip him naked, and they put a purple robe on him, and they take some branches, and they form it into the shape of a crown, and those branches have thorns on it. Now, based on the horticulture around Jerusalem, the best guess is those thorns were probably about a, about a half an inch long. And the text says that they placed that crown of thorns on Jesus' head. Now, here's what I'm guessing. I'm guessing that several dozen brutal Roman soldiers are doing nothing gently. And so I'm imagining that they, they slam that crown of thorns on his head, and they ground it into his, grind it into his head, and then they, the text says, they mock him. Now, mock is kind of a, I don't know, it's kind of a polite word, isn't it? It's the word that you use if a kid is mimicking their parents. You say, oh, he's just mocking you. It's almost sometimes a cute word, but you know what it means. It means they, they made fun of him. And maybe for a lot of you, it's been a long time since high school, but you've seen some kids get made fun of before, and you've probably seen some people get made fun of in very cruel ways. And these Roman soldiers, not knowing really who Jesus is, gather around him and they put the crown of thorns on him, and they make fun of them, of the one who created them, who had part in knitting and forming them in their mother's wounds, wombs, and they gather around him and, and make fun of him and spit on him and strike him. And they do all of this to the same man who may be less, definitely less than 24 hours, maybe even less than 12 hours before this moment, had wrapped the towel around his waist, knelt down on the ground, and washed his disciples' feet. They do that to, to our Jesus. But now it's time to take him to Golgotha, and so they march him into the streets of Jerusalem. You see, many conquering generals and even some kings had marched through the streets of Jerusalem victoriously. But this was a, a mockery of all of that, because now they take this guy who claims to be the king, and they march him through the streets, and there are crowds gathered around who are surely hurling insults. There's a, an old saying, and I don't think it still happens, but a long time ago in the history of our nation, when someone would be taken from their prison cell on death row to be taken to the death chamber to be executed, someone would proclaim, dead man walking, dead man walking. And in this moment, the source of life himself was a dead man walking. And the rock of ages who had created everything could not even bear up under the weight of that 30, pound, 30 or 40 pound crossbar for the cross as he's walking through the streets and he stumbles under the weight of it because he's been beaten nearly to death. And there just happens to be a man on the side of the road named Simon. The text says Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is in northern Africa. So Simon has come a long ways to come to Jerusalem. And we don't know his story, I kind of wish that we did, but maybe, maybe this is a once-in-a-lifetime event where he's gathered his family and they've come to Jerusalem for, to celebrate the Passover. Maybe his kids are with him, we don't know, but he's on the side of the road, and maybe he's just kind of stumbled upon this, this mockery of a parade, and he doesn't really know what's going on, and he just can't seem to take his eyes off of it. 
But in a moment, he's grabbed by one of the Roman soldiers, and all of a sudden, he's a part of this story. And I can imagine maybe that he's brought a, a little lamb with him from Cyrene to, to sacrifice for the Passover. And now he's carrying the cross for the sacrificial lamb of God. Pierre Van Passen has a memoir of the what it was like to be a Jewish person in Germany in the years up before the, uh, the World War II. And in this memoir, he tells the story of a time when a couple of Nazi storm soldiers arrested an elderly Jewish rabbi. And they want to have some fun with him, so they take him back to their headquarters. And in one corner of the room, a Jewish man is being beaten to death by some Nazi soldiers. But again, they decide to have a little fun with him, and so... They tell this elderly Jewish rabbi, they command him to strip naked, which is obviously problematic for a Jewish rabbi. And then they tell him, we want you to preach the sermon that you have prepared for this coming Sabbath day in the synagogue. So trembling, the elderly Jewish rabbi asks for his yarmulke, the little cap that he would wear on his hat because he just didn't feel comfortable doing this otherwise. They thought it was, that made it even funnier. So sneering, they put it on his head and trembling naked while these jeering soldiers are laughing and mocking him, he proceeds to give the message he had prepared for that Sabbath day from Micah chapter 6 on what it meant to walk humbly with God. I can't really imagine the shame of a situation like that, but maybe it's just a little bit of a a shadow of what happens to Jesus. I cannot fathom the indignity that Jesus experienced in the hours surrounding the crucifixion. With every slap of flesh on his, on his body, with every whip of the, or lash of the whip, with, with every insult that was hurled at him, every time somebody spat on him, I can't imagine the self-restraint it took. He could have ended it all, right? I mean, this is Jesus. He has the power to, to call down 10,000 angels and stop it all. And he doesn't. And he maintains his composure in the face of all of that indignity. And I can't even imagine. I can't imagine what that's like and what he went through. When we think about the cross... Because the moment then arrives when they arrive at Golgotha, and, and all that the text says is, there they crucified him. We want more detail, and we, we, want, we don't know what that means, and we nev we've never seen a crucifixion, so we want more. Because for us, the cross is a symbol of salvation. It's a beautiful symbol of salvation, right? We have beautiful pieces of artwork, and we wear jewelry. In fact, if you've Want to start saving now for Christmas time this week? I looked up on Amazon. Uh, you can buy this diamond cross pendant for $14,290.99, right? So start saving now. It'd be a pretty good present, right? You see, the cross is this for us. It's a beautiful symbol of salvation. Not so for Romans. The Roman historian Cicero described it like this. The idea of the cross should never come near the bodies of Roman citizens. It should never pass through their thoughts, eyes, or hearts. For a Roman citizen, crucifixion was the worst possible scenario. It was reserved for murderers and rebellious slaves and for 
out in the colonies for the worst of the worst. It, didn't even, it wasn't even something they wanted to think about. And even for Jewish people, because of what Deuteronomy says, they viewed it as a curse, anyone who hung on a tree. In fact, if Jewish people were in charge of some sort of an execution, they preferred stoning. Crucifixion was the worst possible way to go in a culture. But again, all the text says is they crucified him. And we're left wondering, what, what's that look like? Like, what's it look, what was that like? What did Jesus experience? And the reason the text doesn't give us any more than it does is because everyone who read the text originally or heard the story originally knew exactly what it meant. And they didn't want to really hear any details about it, but we're left wondering, what was that like? What did Jesus experience? Have you ever thought about that? What did Jesus see? For me, one of the most difficult things to imagine Jesus seeing as he hangs on the cross is that he had to see his mother. And watch, he had to watch his mother watch him die. Can you imagine how heartbreaking it was for Mary to sit at the foot of the cross? I don't think we can. I don't think we can fathom what that must have been like. As she watches her son be crucified, surely her mind goes back to those moments. Maybe the moments when she had wiped a a sweaty forehead, or maybe a fevered forehead, and now that forehead is marred with that crown of thorns. Or maybe she remembers the times that she held his little hands and feet and, and helped, helped him learn to walk, and how confusing that must have been because she knew he was God and something special. At the same time, he was a baby, and she had to help him learn to walk. And now she looks at him, and she sees nails going through his hands and his feet. And that back that she must have rubbed when he was a small child and surely cried at times and now that back is is bloody and destroyed by by what he's experienced i can't imagine the heartbreak and jesus had to watch that you ever seen your mom weep i don't mean cry my mom's pretty emotional right i growing up i could make my mom cry pretty easy that's she's kind of like that but I can remember the, a time or two that I've seen her, her weep at funerals. Boy, that's awful. That, that's, I, that's awful. I don't, in fact, we, we hold back sometimes info from our moms because we don't want them to be emotional. We don't want them to experience that. And yet Jesus had to watch his mother watch him die. And then I think about what Jesus heard on the cross. When I go, I hope I'm surrounded by people who love me and say nice things to me and about me. I don't know about you. And it's been heartbreaking over the past year and a half to hear stories of people who have died alone without their families. It's just awful. But Jesus doesn't hear kind words from family members. Here's what Jesus hears while hanging on the cross. Those who passed by derided him, Matthew 27, verse 39, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Here's what Jesus hears as he's dying. You're a liar. Everything you've said about yourself, we don't buy a word of it. You're a liar. He, heard, he hears hatred as he hangs on the cross and is dying. 
And what did Jesus feel physically? Perhaps the, that's the part of this that we're drawn to the most and we wonder about the most. What was crucifixion like? Because we've never seen it. We can only imagine how awful it is. And so doctors have tried to imagine what crucifixion was like and what that must have looked like. Here's an example of one doctor's description. This doctor's, and this is a, a long quote, but I want you to hear it's fascinating and, and heart-rending. Once at Golgotha, the cross was placed on the ground, and the exhausted Jesus was made to lie stretched out. The soldier moved quickly to find the depression at the front of the wrist, where he drove a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. He would then move to the, over, to the other side and repeat the action before moving to the feet. The left foot was pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail was driven through the arch of both feet, leaving the knees flexed. The cross was then raised and dropped into a socket in the ground, and the crucifixion was begun. With his arms outstretched and fastened by the nails, Jesus had to support most of the weight of his body with his arms. The chest cavity would be pulled upward and outward, making it difficult to exhale in order to be able to draw a fresh breath. But when his longing for oxygen became unbearable, he would have to push himself up with his feet, thus giving more natural support to the weight of his body, releasing some of the weight from his arms and enabling his chest cavity to contract more normally. By pushing himself upward in this way, he would fend off suffocation, but it was extremely painful because it required putting the body's weight on the nails, holding the feet, and bending the elbows and pulling upward on the nails driven through the wrists. Jesus' back, which had been torn open by the whipping, would scrape against the wooden cross with each breath. As muscle cramps and partial paralysis took over, he endured an agonizing death. Crucifixion was a slow, agonizing death by asphyxia. And in some cases, the crucified men would survive for several days, nearly suffocating, but not quite dying. This was why the executioners would sometimes break the legs of the criminal so that death would come quickly. That's what Jesus felt. But beyond what Jesus could have felt with any of his five senses is what he felt spiritually when on the cross he carried the sins of the world. And biblical writers tried to describe it in different ways. Isaiah would predict it when he says in Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I can't, and I've said this already a couple of times, I can't begin to fathom what Jesus experiences. And here's the thing, no one can. Because when Jesus bears the weight of the world and the sins and the guilt of the world on his shoulders on the cross, he did something that no one in history has ever done and will ever do again. And his suffering in that moment when he bears those sins is unique in history. Have you ever thought about what Jesus experiences in the Garden of Gethsemane? And how surprising it is, like up till that point in the life of Jesus, he's been unflappable. I mean, it's face towards Jerusalem. He's ready to go. He knows what his mission is. But when he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane, it's like he loses it a little bit. And he kind of, he loses his composure. And when he prays, his prayer goes something like this. He says, I am very sorrowful even to death. You know what that means? Jesus prays, I'm so sad, I feel like I'm going to die. That doesn't sound like Jesus elsewhere in the Gospels. He doesn't talk like that. But when he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane, something hits him. And I've got to believe it's this. It's at this moment he knows or begins to feel the weight, literally the weight 
of the world on his shoulders because in this moment, he bears the sins of the world. Other writers of Scripture describe it in this way. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or 1 Peter 2, verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Above all that Jesus experienced, the most excruciating part of it was the separation he experienced from his Father when he bore the sins of the world. When he bore Matt Cook's sins. And when he bore the sins of every person in this room. And then, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Creator, the Rock of Ages, the Savior of all, our all in all, died. And I think it's fair and reasonable to ask why. I mean, why that? Why does he, sure, we know kind of philosophically and theologically why it had to happen, but why does he choose to do this? I think we could make a long list of reasons why. We could say, well, compassion and mercy and justice and wrath and righteousness, and we could make a long list of all the reasons why Jesus did this. But there's only one word that fully describes and encapsulates what Jesus does on the cross, and that's the word love. And I know that you hear that in church a lot, and it's love, 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 but that's it. That's why he does this. It is because of love. Here's how Paul describes it in Ephesians 5, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's why he does this. It's because of love. Tonight, as we begin this series of lessons, the the leaders here have asked me to to talk about the basics of the faith. What, what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus and how to become a follower of Jesus and what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus as a member of this church, what this church is about. And there's a lot of different ways that we could do that and we've got five lessons to do that, but I, I wanna be clear that of all of the ways that we could do this, the first thing to do is to not talk about what we need to do in response to God. The first thing to talk about is not what this church is about or what we believe. The first thing we must talk about is what God has done through Jesus Christ. And I'm gonna give you a series of five words that's been mentioned a moment ago. And the first word that, that I want you to hear, and if you're watching online or you're watching this at some point later on the internet, The one thing I want you to know tonight as we begin this series and think about what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus and to be a member of this church, this is the one word I want you to hear. Loved. You are loved deeply by our Heavenly Father. And you know what? It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. It doesn't matter if you go to church or not. It doesn't matter if you even believe in God. You are deeply loved by our Heavenly Father. And it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how bad your past is, and you may even think there's no way that God could ever love me. It doesn't matter. You are deeply loved. And it doesn't matter how how cool you are or popular you are or how surrounded you are by other people or how lonely you are in the world. Whatever your situation is, I want you to know that you are loved deeply by our Heavenly Father. 
And if you can't get that or don't understand that, then nothing else matters. The rest of what we talk about for the rest of the weekend won't make any sense and won't matter. You are deeply, deeply loved by our Heavenly Father. And the demonstration of that love is the story that we've just told. That Jesus died for you. That God demonstrated his love by sending Jesus for you while while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies. Now, for most of us in, in the room tonight, this is, this is nothing new. You've heard this story before many, many times. What difference does it make as we walk out those doors? Because again, most of you are like, okay, thanks for the reminder, we are loved. But as we walk out the doors, what difference does that make? And here's, here's what I want to tell you tonight. As we re- are reminded that we are loved, here's the one thing I hope you'll remember tonight. That because we are loved, this incredible reminder for us is this, real sacrificial love changes things. Now, I recognize that this is redundant because real love is sacrificial love, right? Sacrificial love is real. But I think both words are important. You need to see both. Real sacrificial love changes things. Because the love that Jesus showed for us on the cross changed the history of the world. Let that sink in. Like, it changed the trajectory of the history of the world. And it changed the world. And if you were a follower of Jesus, it changed your life. And it transformed everything. Real sacrificial love changes things. I don't know if you remember seven or eight years ago, there was a, a mini-series on TV just called The Bible. And it was, it was pretty good. And they went kind of through the old, some big Old Testament stories all the way up through the New Testament. And I watched some of it. It was, it was pretty good. And you got to the time of Jesus, and there was this scene when Jesus is in a boat fishing with Peter, and he looks at Peter and says, follow me. And this is kind of by the creativity of the the writers of the show. In response to Jesus saying, hey, follow me, Peter looks at him and says, what are we going to do? Which you can imagine Peter saying that, right? Follow me. What what are we going to do? And Jesus looks at him and kind of then looks over the sea, and he says, we're going to change the world. And that's exactly what they did because of love. Now, what's challenging is our understanding of love is kind of messed up. You see, because our cultural view of love is that love is this thing that you fall into and then you can fall right back out of. And there's all kinds of songs that define it. Love is a rose for my frozen fans. Love is an open door. I mean, we could go on and on and on of all the the ways that we define love. And it's this feel-good thing with the brotherhood of man, all that. But here's the deal. As, As much as that feels good, love is more than a feeling. It's more than a thing. Love is a verb. Love is something that you have to do. I think Clint Black sang something about that back 25, 30 years ago. Love isn't something that we have. It's, it's something that we do. It's not just this thing. That we, and love is real love. When you dive into the word of what that means, love is hard. It requires sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice is the ultimate example of it. One author describes it this way. I have found that love is a lot more closely related to work than to play. It has a lot more to do with being a servant than with being a hero. When I set about the task of loving, I usually end up giving instead of receiving. Love inevitably costs me something, and it cost Jesus something. 
See, real sacrificial love changes things, and we've all experienced that because of Jesus. But as we walk out the doors tonight, what if we emulated the love that we've experienced from Jesus, that he demonstrated on the cross? What would happen? How would it change things? You know what it would do? It would change the world's view of us. Like if we really loved like Jesus loved us and called us to love, it would change the world's view of us. How's the world view Christians these days? It's not real positive, is it? It's not real positive. But do you remember what Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35? He says, as the world looks at you, it's kind of a paraphrase of it, he says, I want you to love one another. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And he says, the world will know that you are my disciples by what? By your theology? By your stand for morality? No, 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 no. Jesus said, the world will know that you are my disciples by your political party. Well, no. While there might be a place for any of those things at given times, Jesus said, the world is going to know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And imagine if we really loved like that, the difference that it would make. Well, I think about the way some Christians have behaved over the past year and a half. And I wonder if the world would look at us differently if we sacrificially loved one another. It would change the world's view of us. I mean, if we loved like this, it would, it would change our marriages, wouldn't it? It would change our families. Didn't Paul say something about this? He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the story that we talked about that's pretty brutal and difficult, Paul sets up that up as a model for marriage. And think about it, if we loved our wives with that kind of sacrificial type of love, if wives loved their husbands and husbands loved their wives, think about how that would transform our marriages. Because it would say, it's, I'm not first, I'm not concerned about me, I'm here to give and to serve. Now I know there's some marriage stuff that makes this difficult, but ideally, imagine if we, if we loved like this. If we said, you know what, I'm going to the back of the line, you first. Imagine the impact it would make in our marriages if we loved like this. And not only would it change our marriages, it would, I believe, and maybe I'm an idealist, I believe it would change the world. And we talk about this sometimes. Christians, we want to change the world. We want to change the world. Well, where's that going to start? It's going to start when we sacrificially love our neighbors as ourselves. I can't help but think of Dr. Kent Brantley. And again, this was, what, seven, eight years ago when the Ebola virus was raging in Africa. And he sent, his, he sent his family home and he stayed. And I don't know exactly why he stayed, but there's really only one reason you would stay in that sort of situation, because you really loved your neighbor as yourself. And he stayed, and he sacrificed, and he caught Ebola, and he almost died. And the world caught a glimpse of it. And I don't know if you remember but it impacted the world to know that a Christian would sacrifice like that for the sake of others. I really believe if we loved like that, we could change the world. So here's my challenge for you tonight. Yes, know that you are loved. That's the foundation of what we do the rest of the weekend. But I want to challenge you to love your neighbors and your coworkers and people who don't look like you and people who are different than you. I want to challenge you to love those folks with the same kind of love with which you've been loved. So what's it going to look like? For you, love, for you to love your neighbors like this, or your coworkers, but we could stop there. You know what? That's kind of easy. 
Because most of our coworkers and most of our neighbors are a lot like us. What about the person who is different than you? Who acts different than you? Who looks different than you? What about the person who's in poverty, who lives in a different neighborhood? What's it going to look like to love them this week with the same kind of love that you've been loved? If we loved like that, we could change the world. So, as we begin this whole series, I want you to know you are loved, and real sacrificial love changes things. And if your life has not been transformed by the the power of the love of God through Jesus Christ, through the good news that we've talked about, then then we want to help you with that. If you're watching online, contact the church through the the venue that you're watching, right? Contact somebody here if you want to know more about that. Or maybe tonight if you're in our audience and and you want to know more about that, then talk to one of the ministers or one of the elders. Or maybe tonight you're ready to put Christ on in baptism. We'd love to help you with that. Or maybe, maybe you've just kind of forgotten this and you haven't lived as someone whose life has been transformed by the love of Jesus. Then we'd love to pray for you and help you. One author described it in a way similar to this. He said, you know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. Aren't you glad that it doesn't say, for God so loved the rich people? Or God so loved the poor people? Or God so loved the thin? I'm glad he didn't say that, right? Aren't you glad it doesn't say, God so loved the, the South Americans or the Asians or the Africans or North America? It says, God so loved the world. Are you included in the world? Yes, is the answer to that question. Yes, you are. Then that means you are included in the love of God. And it's nice to be included, isn't it? Because we're not always included. A university will exclude you if you're not smart enough. A business will exclude you if you're not qualified enough. And unfortunately, there's some churches that will exclude you if, if you're not good enough according to their standards. But the love of God always, always includes you. It includes everyone. But we say, wait a second, Matt, there's got to be a limit to that, right? There's got to be a limit to the love of God. David the adulterer never found it. Paul the murderer never found it. Peter the liar never found it. They all hit rock bottom in life, but they never found the bottom, rock bottom of God's love. They never found it. You're included in the love of God. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that beautiful to know that you're included? And then someone has kind of said it this way. How is it that a, a nail could hold Jesus to a cross? And they said, nails don't hold gods to trees. And that's right. Nails don't hold gods to trees. But love does. And love did. I want to share, as we close, just a, a brief snippet of part of our story and what we've experienced. About nine years ago this month, her daughter was diagnosed with cancer, um, went through some, she was two years old, she went through chemotherapy and then a liver transplant. She had all kinds of trouble with her liver transplant for at least a couple, three years. It was kind of rough, all that, that whole phase of her, her life, and it was really difficult. And there was a point at which we didn't know if her new liver was going to make it. In fact, I've got some pictures of her. This is not, it looks really awful and sad. She was just probably pouting about something is all it was. Uh, 
this, these were difficult days, and, and I, I think about how much we loved our daughter, and just so you know, there she is now. She's doing really good. She's, she's healthy. But we went through this, this phase where they weren't sure if, if her liver was going to make it and what it would look like to, to have to have another transplant. In fact, they've told us it may be that, that down the road she may need another transplant. And one of the options in the transplant world, of course, we had to wait on someone, a, a child, to die so that she could have a new liver when she got one the first time. But if she ever needs another one, and I pray that she doesn't, and she's doing really well, and she's healthy, and we're so thankful for that. But if she ever does need a, another liver transplant, one of the options is what's called a living donor transplant. The human body is incredible, right? Where they could take someone who is healthy and well and cut a chunk of their liver out and put it in someone else. I don't know how it works, but that's a possibility. And I have the same blood type as my daughter, and if it came to the point at which they said, she needs a new liver and she needs it quick, will you give a part of your liver for your daughter? How long do you think it's going to take me to respond to that? No time at all. Why? Because I love my daughter. And any of you would do the same thing for your children, for your grandchildren, probably for some other children that you love, because we love our kids that much and our grandkids that much. But here's what I know about my love. It is very imperfect. Boy, I can be selfish sometimes. And I can be cranky. And after all that we went through, you, you would think that, that I would just love my daughter perfectly sometimes. But boy, she can get on my nerves. She's 11 now, just starting to get at that age. It's like, and just a little bit of smart mouth in her. You know how it goes. And you would think, well, man, but after all of that, no, my love is imperfect. And even with my imperfect love and your imperfect love, we're willing to sacrifice for the people we love. If we're willing to do that much with an imperfect love, how much more beautiful and how much more perfect is the love of God? And how much more perfect is the love of a Savior who is perfect? If we love the people that are in our lives that much, how much more does God love us? You see, Jesus didn't give his liver up. He gave everything. Everything for us. That's how loved you are. And real love, real sacrificial love, changes things. And if we can help you tonight as you think about how that love might transform your life, we'd love to do that while we stand and sing together. While the light from the throne shines for you and me, let us listen to the call of love. Zion's call is ringing, coming from the Yes. 
tarry below. There is work to do, and our strength cometh from above. As we labor and wait, we must all be true. Let us miss to the call of love. Zion's Thank everybody for being here. We're going to sing a song and then close with a prayer. Um, if you would, uh, we'll sing number 937. 937. <clears throat> God, you are worthy of all our praise, and we do stand in awe of you. Lord, we're thankful for this evening we've spent together. We thank you so much for Brother Cook and the, uh, the words that he brought to us tonight that reminded us of the love, the perfect love that you have for us, and we're thankful for that love, the love that was manifest in giving your son to uh, come to this earth and die for us, and we're so thankful. Uh, for that sacrifice. Lord, we pray that uh, the way we leave, live our lives will cause others to notice 
that, uh, that we are loved, and as a result, they'll want to know about the love that is in us because of you. Lord, we're thankful for Brother Cook. We pray that you bless him as he is here with us this weekend, that you'll bless him with safety, that you'll be with his family while he is away from them. We're reminded of the, the many prayers that were offered here on behalf of his daughter during those difficult times, and we're so thankful to hear a good report of uh, how well she is doing. Lord, you, we pray that you'll be with us here as a congregation that will continue to shine a light in this uh, area that others, again, might seek you because of our, our love for one another and our love for uh, those outside this body here. Bless us as we're about to go down and enjoy some fellowship, that we're going to partake in some food. We pray that it will nourish us, that it will give us energy, that we'll all have a desire to come back here tomorrow night again to fellowship with one another and hear a great message from your word. Again, we thank you for your son who died for us, and it's through his name we pray.